your heart filled with thankfulness today? I hope that it is, because if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have many reasons to celebrate. That's really the theme of this morning's sermon. I invite you to turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is on page 469 in your pew Bible. We are taking a one-week break from our series in 1 Timothy in order to focus on this theme of giving thanks. Uh, we ought to give thanks at all times in every way to the Lord. Scripture says to rejoice in the Lord always, but it's appropriate to devote a special day of the year, a special weekend to, to concentrate on the need and the call to thanksgiving to God. And that's what the psalmist does in Psalm 100. It's the only psalm in Scripture that's specifically designated for giving thanks. Uh, it's a short psalm, and it's quite animated. Uh, I memorized this as a child uh, in the King James Version. I'm going to read it in the English Standard Version. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people in the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. William Plumer, uh, a Southern Presbyterian minister of a former era, said of this psalm, If anything could stir the soul of a devout man, it would be the sentiments here so happily expressed. And there is a joyfulness, there is a jubilance, there is a spirit of celebration from verse 1 all the way through verse 5 of this psalm. A psalm like this reminds us that Worship is simple. God never intended it to be complicated. If you look at this psalm, you'll see that the longest words are thanksgiving, faithfulness, and generations. Those are words that even a child can, under, can understand, which means that children, too, are called to worship the Lord. And so, children, we're glad that you're all in here with us today. We know there's no kingdom kids today. And this psalm is for you every bit as much as it is for your moms and your dads. And so it's our prayer that children and adults alike will listen to what this psalm says to us. The structure of the psalm is summarized in the bulletin. Shout to the Lord, serve the Lord, sing to the Lord, know the Lord, praise the Lord, thank the Lord, bless the Lord. This is a sevenfold summons to worship. Now, we're familiar with that word summons. Uh, we've often hear in the context of a court, right? You have a summons to appear in court. Well, this is a summons to worship, to enter into God's royal court and to praise him as the king of kings. The psalmist here calls all people everywhere to worship the Lord. And he calls them seven times to do that. It must be pretty important to worship the Lord. Kids, I was thinking if uh, your parents woke you up and said, get up, go to school, pay attention, take notes, study hard, learn a lot, do well, 
you would think that going to school is pretty important, right? Maybe your parents do say that to you. Uh, But school is important, but worship is even more so. And that's why the psalmist issues this call seven times using different words to urge us to worship the Lord. This emphasizes not only the importance of worshiping the Lord, but I think he's also emphasizing the need to worship God with all that we are and all that we have. The number seven in Scripture represents wholeness, completeness, and even perfection. So it's not just a sevenfold repetition of, of how important it is to worship God. This is a call for us to give everything we've got when it comes to worshiping the Lord. In the words of another scripture, we are to worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every fiber of our being. Worship God joyfully, for we have many reasons to rejoice. That, I believe, is is the core truth, the transformative truth taught in this psalm. Worship God joyfully, for we have many reasons to rejoice. If you look at the structure of Psalm 100, you'll, you'll see that after issuing a few calls to worship there in the first couple of verses, he then gives us right in the middle of the psalm the reasons why we're to worship. And then he repeats this same pattern in the second half of the psalm, calling us to worship several times again, and then giving us the reason why we should worship at the end of the psalm. So we're going to go through this, this seven-fold summons. Where I'm going to spend the longest time on the first one, and then we'll go a bit more quickly through the other ones. The first summons summarized is, shout to the Lord. That's how the psalm begins. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. That phrase, make a joyful noise, in the original Hebrew, literally means to raise a shout Or to give a blast like on a trumpet. Um, You might recall earlier this year during the coronation of King Charles III at Westminster Abbey in London. The bells were rung and the people shouted, God save the king. Uh, There was a similar celebration back during the coronation of Israel's first king, Saul. We read there in the Old Testament that all the people shouted, saying, Long live the king. We see the same kind of celebration when David's son Solomon was crowned king. We read there in the scripture that they blew the trumpet and they shouted, Long live the king. Now if earthly kings deserve this kind of honor, And when the people praised Solomon, when when they honored him as king, the Bible says that the earth was split by the noise, that it was so powerful. And yet Solomon was an earthly king. He was a sinful king. He was a king over a certain region, not king over all the earth. So if earthly kings are to receive this kind of honor, how much more should the king of all creation You know, I asked my grandkids a few days ago as I was thinking about this. I got them on the uh, FaceTime or whatever you call it, and I said, what would you say, I asked them on the spur of the moment, what would you say right now if you could shout to the Lord? What would you say to him? And then I texted a few of our parents in the congregation here, and I said, "Uh, would you mind asking your kids on the spur of the moment, what would they say if they could shout to the Lord? Here are some of the responses we received, and... um, 
There were several of them. I'll just give you samples, and these are all from different kids. If they had an opportunity to shout to the Lord, some of the kids said they would say, I love this first one, you're the best, God. You're so great, Lord, so mighty. Thank you for making the world. Another said, thank you for making the animals. We praise you, Lord. You can defeat Satan. I love you and thank you for blessing me. And this last one, I love you and I like Jesus. (laughs) David said to the Lord, Your praise reaches to the heavens. It is sung by children and babies. Worship is simple. God never intended to make it complicated. By the way, when I sent out this text to some of the parents, one mom texted back, and I quote, Perfect timing. I just had all the kids with me together in the car, and we just stopped, and I asked them all what they would say. What a great pause for us right now to stop and reflect to keep us from all getting cranky as we continue our errands, unquote. And I'll tell you, you know, even around Christmas time, we can get cranky, can't we? We get busy doing our shopping, running around in different errands, and we say that Jesus is the reason for the season. If we're not careful, we can become carnal, we can become cranky, and one of the wisest things we can do is just stop. Be still and know that he is God. Reflect on the Lord's goodness and say a shout of praise or sing something joyful to the Lord. And that will bring our hearts back in alignment with the beautiful Lord that we serve. The Bible says that such praise is to be universal. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. John Calvin wrote, Quote, since he invites the whole of the inhabitants of the earth indiscriminately to praise the Lord, he seems in the spirit of prophecy to refer to the period when the church would be gathered out of different nations. End quote. I think Calvin's exactly right. Just a few decades after Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, rose again from the grave by the power of God and was ascended to God's right hand, to the place of majesty in heaven, the Apostle Paul wrote this to a local church in Colossae. He said, The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. Colossians 1.6 And that same gospel continues to go out into all the world today, changing lives everywhere. Don't don't miss the connection here, even for our church, Webster Bible Church, because we have missionaries going out into all the world on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ and Webster Bible Church in particular. As was mentioned during the announcements this past week, we sent our beloved missionary Bill Smith back to Papua New Guinea with a full container just packed with with medical supplies. Bill Bill told me afterwards, he goes, I don't think we could get another toothpick in there. It was so full, but we sent back with medical supplies, uh, many other resources in order to share God's love and most importantly, the good news of Jesus Christ with people that live 11,000 miles from here, literally on the other side of the world. God has called his church to do that. 
so that all creation will worship the Lord, so that all the earth would make a joyful shout to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, let me remind you that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, we can be absolutely certain that we will succeed in our mission. In Revelation 5, the Apostle John is given a vision of the future, a vision of heaven. When human history has come to pass and God's kingdom is consummated, and in this vision, John sees people from every tribe, language, and ethnicity, people from all over the earth making a joyful noise to the Lord, praising God. Listen to what he says. He says, in a, John writes, In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Right? This is praising the Lord, all the earth, everything in the sea, on earth and in heaven. Our mission will succeed. So as we gather even on a day like today, in a local church in Webster, New York, we should be reminded, brothers and sisters, that our praise on earth should be a prelude of heaven. Our praise on earth should be a prelude of heaven. Do we worship God with this kind of fervency, with this kind of zeal? Do we sing with all our heart to the God who has created us, redeemed us, and loved us? We should worship the Lord with everything we've got, holding nothing back, with all reverence, enthusiasm, and zeal. Shout to the Lord. The second call is serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Verse 2a, serve the Lord with gladness. True worship consists not only in what we say, but in what we do. Uh, Thomas Manton, a 17th century Puritan, wrote, Some talk, but do nothing. They are like cypress trees, tall and beautiful, but unfruitful. Uh, a couple centuries later, the 19th century pastor, British pastor, Charles Spurgeon, expanded on Manton's analogy, saying that such people are conspicuous and aim to be so. Rising above their fellows, they invite attention. But when you turn your eyes toward them, you cannot discover even a tiny apple upon them or any other useful fruit. They look most at home near the grave, and a melancholy air surrounds them. But still they are not half as valuable as the more lowly fruit bearers which flourish unobserved with cheerful vigor. End quote. What a powerful statement. And then Spurgeon prayed to this. Lord, let me be as low and unnoticed as thou pleasest, but do enable me to bear fruit to the honor of thy name and to the comfort of thy people. Brothers and sisters, true worship consists not just in our words, but also in our deeds, what we actually do. And it's not just in our deeds but it's doing these deeds with gladness. Serve the Lord 
with gladness. Serve the Lord joyfully. You know, sadly, in many churches today, people serve because they feel obligated, because they feel forced. They serve to relieve their guilt or to quiet their conscience or even to get noticed by others. But Scripture says that we are to serve with the sincerity of our hearts as bondservants to Jesus Christ, not with eye service as people pleasers, but as one who wants to please God from our hearts. Do you serve God in that way? Sometimes it's hard when we're involved in ministry. We get focused maybe on the task itself, and it can be frustrating for us. Or sometimes we can focus even on the um, imperfect people that God has caused us to serve. And they don't maybe appreciate us the way they should, or maybe they don't help out the way they should. Maybe they're ungrateful, or maybe they have a sense of entitlement to the service we render to them. When we're focused on the task itself, or when we're focused on ourselves, or even the people that we're called to serve, and we lose sight of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've begun to minister with a misplaced focus. And the best thing that we can do is to remember what great things the Lord has done for us. And then we serve the Lord with gladness. That's the key. Well, the third call to praise is sing to the Lord. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. And then thirdly, come before His presence with singing. We've done some singing already here during our worship service as we do each Lord's Day. The famous 18th century hymn writer Isaac Watts issued his own call to worship with these words. Some of you will remember these words and even be singing the tune in your head. Come we that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Join in a song of sweet accord and thus surround the throne. But in the next stanza he says this. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God, but children of the heavenly king may speak their joys abroad. So singing from a heart that truly worships God is something that only believers in Jesus Christ can genuinely do. It's a mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 15.15 says this, A cheerful heart has a continual feast. A cheerful heart has a continual feast. Many of us enjoyed a feast this past Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Some of you might be suffering from carb coma this morning. But when it comes to feasting, I, I, and I thought of this verse, a cheerful heart has a continual feast. Did you know that in China... And in other places of the world, burping is not rude. Do you know that? Serious. Burping is not considered rude. It shows that you're satisfied with your meal, and it's actually a compliment to the chef. Now, don't try this at home, because somebody's going to remind you that we're in America, not China. Okay? But singing is a universal expression of praise by those who are filled with the Holy Spirit and are therefore satisfied with all the good things that the Lord gives us. 
Such people enjoy a perpetual feast. Did you notice that the common denominator in the first three calls to worship in Psalm 100 is joy? Come make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Joy, joy, joy. How do we get such joy? Well, this takes us to the next one in verse 3. Know the Lord. Know the Lord. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and, not, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Here in this verse, at the center of the psalm, he makes three marvelous declarations about the Lord. The first one is simple, straightforward, and profound. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The psalmist here is declaring, in essence, what the Lord Himself declares in Isaiah 46, 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and no one is like me. You know, by affirming this truth that the Lord, He is God, the psalmist is implying that the other gods are not gods. They're gods with a small g, not with a capital G. Uh, they are gods that aren't truly gods, though they purport to be gods, or people worship them as gods. The only God there is, is the Lord God of Scripture. He is the one true God. And as a church, we affirm this in our doctrinal statement. If you're a member here at Webster Bible Church, or you are another believer in Christ that can affirm what we have in our doctrine, I invite you right now to repeat this with me. We believe that there is one and only one living and true God, an infinite, intelligent spirit, the creator and ruler of heaven and earth. He is inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all honor, confidence, and love. He eternally exists in three persons who are equal in every divine perfection and who execute distinct but harmonious roles in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. Amen. We are called to worship the Lord not only because of what He does, but because of who He is. He is worthy to be worshipped simply because the Lord, He is God. The second truth we are told, the second truth we are called to know, it is He who has made us and we are His. Last week as part of our scripture reading, we read Genesis 1. The Bible begins with this statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Several paragraphs later in that same chapter we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Psalm 139, David praised God saying, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. And that's what the psalmist calls us to do. To know that the Lord is God. And to know that He is the one who has made us. Uh, some manuscripts 
say we are his. Other manuscripts say that he has made us and not we ourselves. There is no such thing as a self-made person. Everything that we are, everything that we have, we have received from God. And he deserves all the praise. So the psalmist tells us to worship the Lord because we have been created by God. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything and everyone in it, the world and those who dwell in it. And yet, tragically, the story of human history is that we have rebelled against the Lord God, our Creator. We have sought to make a name for ourselves instead of blessing the name of the Lord. And our sins have separated us from God. And unless we repent, the Bible warns us that we will perish forever apart from God's glorious presence. But you heard those words that one read moments ago. But God. But God. What did God do? He so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. This takes us to the third truth we're called to know. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. The psalmist is writing to fellow worshipers of the one true God. Those that know that the Lord God of Israel is the Lord God of creation. And that the Lord God of creation is the Lord God who has redeemed them from their sins. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay down my life. And I have the power to take up my life again. This commission I have received from my Father. And later on in that same chapter, John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Because my Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Isn't it great to be saved and to be secure in the almighty hands of God the Father and God the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit? We have been sealed to the day of our redemption. And this is something that God does for us as our Redeemer, as our Good Shepherd, as our Great Shepherd. God is often portrayed as the Shepherd of His people in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And this shows us that the Lord God not only created us, but He truly cares for us. That's why He laid down His very life for us. The Bible says that those who entrust their souls to the faithful Creator, to the Good Shepherd, are His forever. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. The Good Shepherd. That gives us reason to rejoice. And so in the last two verses of Psalm 100, we're called to worship three more times. Beginning in verse 4, praise the Lord. He says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. 
This is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, this is being written during the Old Testament era. And this is the place where God manifested His presence to His people. In various places throughout the Old Testament, we are told that God's glory filled the temple. But the physical temple of the Old Testament was a preview of a better temple to come. In the New Testament, Paul writing to a local church of believers in Jesus Christ says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And the you is plural. He is talking to the gathered church, those who have assembled as believers to worship the one true God. The Bible says that we are living stones in God's temple. Therefore, we're to praise the Lord. Psalm 22 says, God inhabits the praise of his people. Isn't it amazing? I mean, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. If we were singing today, standing to read scripture, or we were listening, you know, I noticed if someone walks in or someone walks out, you know, there's kind of that, you know, kind of curious glance as to who it is. Wonder what would happen if we just took a glance and we suddenly noticed it was Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is here every time we meet. Every single time. Though we do not see him, Peter says, we love him. And we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Does your worship reflect the presence of Jesus Christ in our midst? That's something God calls us to know. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? And again, the you is plural. He is talking about the gathered assembly of true worshipers of the living God. So praise the Lord. Thank the Lord. That's the next summons. Second half of verse 4. Let me start at the beginning. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. So we're to enter with thanksgiving, enter God's courts with praise, because Praise and thanksgiving go together. We, we, we praise God for who He is. We thank Him for what He has done. But just to press home the point, the psalmist tells us again in the middle of that verse, give thanks to Him. Give thanks to Him. Paul reiterates this command in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because we always see the good that's going to come out of it? No. Scripture says, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Even when we can't understand why God allows us to go through certain crises in life, we know that God does work all things together for the good of those who love Him. We know that this God loved us so much that He demonstrated His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The God that we worship, the God that we praise, the God that we thank can be trusted with every situation we face in our lives. He can be trusted through all the changing seasons of life. And therefore, the Bible says, give thanks to Him. 
not because we can see the good in every situation, but because we can worship God in every situation. So thank the Lord. Then the psalm closes by saying, bless His name. Bless His name. The word bless comes from the Hebrew word barak, which means to kneel. Just this morning, someone texted me, Psalm 95, 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the sheep of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. The idea here is to honor God, to pay homage to Him as our King, to express our thanks to Him as our ultimate divine benefactor. The Maasai tribe in West Africa have an unusual way of saying thank you. To express their thanks to someone, they get down on the ground and they literally put their forehead on the dirt, right on the ground, And while their head is bowed, literally touching the ground, their forehead, they say to the person who they want to thank, my head is in the dirt. My head is in the dirt. Members of another African tribe express their thanks by sitting for a long time in front of the benefactor's house, just sitting there to honor them, honor the people who have blessed them in some way. As I thought about this, I thought of David, whose life we went through in a study here on Sunday morning not that long ago. Do you remember when God made his covenant with David? David had wanted to build God a house, and God said, no, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to bless you, David. What did David do? Scripture tells us that David, 1 Chronicles, 7, uh, 1 Chronicles 17, 16, then King David went in and sat in the Lord's presence. He just sat in the Lord's presence. And then he said, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? You know, every believer ought to be able to sit before the Lord in reflection and say something similar. God, who am I? Who is my family that you have brought me this far? Thanksgiving is, at its core, an act of humility. It's acknowledging that we need the Lord. And everything that we have in life, we owe to Him. It's acknowledging that apart from God, we have nothing, we can do nothing, and we are nothing. And that's why we give thanks to Him and bless His holy name. And we do so, he says in verse 6, because the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And that verse pretty much speaks for itself. Give thanks to the Lord, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his truth to all generations. What more could we ask for? Let's pray. Father God, as we close our time of meditation upon your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue his work in each of our hearts. 
Lord, sometimes when we've been uh, given to extra relaxation, refreshment, maybe even a measure of self-indulgence over the last few days, it can be difficult to stir our hearts to worship. And yet, Lord, you know our weakness. As we sang earlier, you know our weakness and you fill us with your strength. And you stir our hearts to worship through your word by reminding us of who you are and what you have done for us. And so we, at the conclusion of this service, pray as the psalmist did in Psalm 79, 13. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Help us to do so, O God, we pray. In the name of Christ our Savior, amen.